Welcome to the New Books Network. And hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Robert Mills, Professor of Medieval Studies at University College London, to talk about his landmark book, Seeing Sodomy in the Middle Ages, out in 2015. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here and talking about my book. Wonderful. Nice day in London. Um, it's it's all right. The sun's not shining, but hey. <laughs> I mean, if if we if that was very important, we'd live somewhere else, wouldn't we? Indeed. <laughs> hey, so this is the New Books Network. I'm making air quotes. Um, and we generally talk about new releases. And this book is a bit older, as you might have noticed. Though in the field of medieval studies, we still we list, we still read some things that are much much older than this. But it's a such an important book. Um, and. I want its ideas to be more broadly accessible. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about this very deep dive. Um, so is this bizarre for you? <laughs> well, um, in some ways, yes. I mean, I'm very pleased to be talking about the book. As you say, it was published eight years ago. Um, I was, in fact, thinking about the ideas that became this book much, much longer ago than that. So um, I think the first paper I presented that sowed the seeds for this book was in about 2003 to four. And even before then, I mean, during my doctoral research, which became my first book, Suspended Animation, Pain, Pleasure and Punishment in Medieval Culture, um, I had a chapter which was looking at visual representations of sodomites um, being depicted um, in the guise of their punishment in hell. Um, and so, so yeah, I've been thinking about sodomy for a very long time, about 25 years. Um, and so I'm really pleased that some of these ideas still uh, resonate. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, that's a thing that I think, um, unless until you've written an academic book, you may not really know, is just how long it takes, you know, um, between like the glimmer to the coming up with even a question can take years. So, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's, um, you know, I mean, I think for me, I felt that actually this book needed to take the time that it took. I mean, it needed about, you know, well, it, I mean, I'd say it was a, at least 10 years of detailed research because actually there was so much scholarship to, um, you know, get a handle on, but also so much material that hadn't been uncovered. And, you know, one of the distinctive things about this book compared with, you know, there have been other books on medieval sodomy. <laughs> um, 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 you know, one of the distinctive things about this book, I guess, was thinking about the visual culture associated with sodomy, the idea that it has a, a rich multimedia presence in the Middle Ages, beyond the idea that it's this sort of obscure kind of textual um, category which mainly turns up in theology or the sort of pronouncements of churchmen that actually it does get mediated um, through the visual image through material culture um, so you know that that seemed to be adding a new layer to our understanding of this category and how it's operating yeah, I mean, what led you to write the book originally was is one of my questions because there are other books on sodomy, um, and do you, would you say in part it is? I mean, is largely that the 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 range of your sources is very different. 
Um, some of it is that, but um, absolutely. So, um, you know, no one had really brought together these sources before in quite the way that I do. I mean, there had been other art historians who'd been thinking about, um, you know, categories of sodomy and queer, queerness more broadly. Um, you know, I was very influenced by the work of Michael Camille, for example, a wonderful art historian who, um, you know, passed away far too young um, in 2002, um, but who had been done some pioneering work um, on queering medieval visual culture. And, um, you know, throughout my book, it's peppered with footnotes to some of Camille's work. Um, so, so there are other scholars who had been doing this and been thinking about similar questions, but um, I guess no one before me had quite sort of pieced this together in a monograph form. Um, so yes, I think that's one of the distinctive things that I was trying to do here. I mean, there are other um, key aims that I had. I think one of my aims was to think about sodomy as a gendered category. Um, and that's something we might talk about a bit more. I mean, I'm, I take up the category of transgender um, in relation to um, medieval culture in a way that perhaps, again, you know, scholars hadn't quite done previously. Um, and I also wanted to think about a gender comparative approach to this category, thinking about the extent to which this category applies to women as well as to men, thinking about the implications of queer visual culture more broadly for thinking about female same-sex relations as well as male same-sex relations. Um, so those are some of the um, things that I was trying to do in this book that were perhaps a little bit different from what had been done before. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and this this might be a, a an unfair question, but are you still happy with it? Yes, it, broadly speaking, <laughs> um, absolutely. No, I still feel um, uh, you know I go back to it sometimes and think you know yeah okay yeah I think that still makes sense that still works. Um, I think also you know, I, I feel like now I've written this book, I'm going to still be interested in these questions in the future. I've, you know, last year I gave a paper which was taking another look at some of the imagery that I was discussing in that book, thinking particularly about the question of age difference in relation to same-sex relations, which is a controversial and difficult topic to deal with. But thinking about how some of the imagery that I just dis was discussing in Seeing Sodomy, we might think about it differently in light of some more recent scholarship. Um, and so, so yes, I think um, you know, I you know, I wouldn't claim to have got everything absolutely right. I think vocabularies have changed. I think theoretical um, discourses have shifted, um, and there are probably certain things that I would write in a different way now. But um, you know, such is life in in academia. You know, scholarship moves on, and that's as it should be. Yeah, uh, that's the right answer, by the way. You should still be happy with this book. It it holds up. Um, I mean, it's not that old either. It just feels like the the language, the world around uh, gender sexuality, et cetera, is changing so quickly. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I guess that's the curse of being a la mode, of being so much in your work. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for example, I mean, you know, one 
category that I don't use in the book, but I think has quite a lot of currency now is non-binary, um, which I think would be a, quite a useful category to use in relation to some of the material in the book. I mean, there have been other scholars more recently who've done some of that work. Leah Devon's um, book, The Shape of Sex, for example, which came out a couple of years ago, really important book, thinking about the idea of non-binary as it pertains to medieval um, literary um, uh, and visual culture. So, um, so yes, but, you know, I, I think what I hope I've done in this book is to so some new seeds for other scholars to take up and explore in their own work as well. And again, that's as it should be. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about to the book now. You start with um, the an illustration of Saint Jérôme, and uh, can can you tell us about can you tell us about this? It's the Bellerie of Jean de Paris, and specifically an illustration of Saint Jérôme. Can you tell us about these images? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so these images appear in a book of ours, a luxury book of ours called The Bella of Jean de Berry. Jean de Berry is a patron who, um, you know, was a, a very wealthy individual in the Middle Ages, an important art patron, collector, um, and um, also um, was, um, you know, quite... Um, obsessed um, with, um, you know, just beautiful objects, beautiful things. Um, someone who Michael Camillo mentioned earlier has has written about very interestingly, um, and um, who, her, you know, and Camille discusses Jean de Berry as himself being a potentially kind of queer figure in some ways. Um, and so these images that I discuss at the start of the book appear in a sequence which is, um, you know, representing scenes from the life of St. Jerome. Um, and there's one um, story that's told about Jerome that when, you know, this is, St. Jerome is someone who, you know, as well as being known for his translations of the Bible um, into Latin. Um, he is also someone who's obsessed with virginity as a category with pure with sexual purity. So when he's in a monastery, um, some of his fellow monks decide to play a practical joke on him. And this is presumably to denigrate him in some way to sort of suggest that he's not as sort of, you know, pure as um, he, um, you know, as he likes to make out, as he's promoting in his theological writings. So one of the monks plants a dress besides Jerome's bed, so that when he gets up in the morning for matins to go to church to say his prayers, he puts on the dress by mistake. Um, now, from the monk's perspective, playing this joke on him, the idea is that it it's to make it look like he's had a woman in his bedroom and then he's made this mistake of going to church. So in one of the images in the Bel Air of Jean de Berry, you see Jerome in church wearing a dress, but quite clearly a bearded male. I mean, he sort of looks like he's a bit bleary-eyed. There are a couple of monks in the choir stalls who are gossiping, having a look over, um, seems to be having a snigger. 
And so I start with this image because I think for me it helps encapsulate the extent to which gender and sexuality as categories in the Middle Ages were perhaps in some ways overlapping, perhaps even interchangeable. Um, you know, gender is a characteristic that we often assume is written visibly on the body through outward signs such as clothing. So Jerome's dress, it seems to represent a certain kind of femininity, whereas conversely, sexuality is seen as the kind of inner secret um, that gender openly declares. And so if a man like Jerome going into church, if he's wearing the visual signifiers or performing a style of gender that doesn't conform to his anatomical sex, which might be represented by the beard, then until recently, I mean, a modern viewer might assume that what is being registered there in his gender transgressive appearance, the fact that he's essentially doing a kind of, you know, involuntary drag, that that might register an underlying disposition towards sex with men, desire for men, that somehow um, sort of gender transgressive behavior links to homoeroticism in some way. But in the Middle Ages, that's not actually what's going on. The context for that image suggests something very different. So I start with that image as a way of opening up these questions about the relationship between gender and sexuality, about some of the modern assumptions that we might make about an image like this, which when we look at the underlying context, means something quite different. Yeah. So just to put a fine point on it, the monks want us to know that he is not a not virginal messing around with women had a woman in his bed and then but for a thousand years right this idea has been him in a dress is uh, that he must be oh, gay right yeah i mean that, that would be one uh, you know one kind of modern um assumption i guess i mean that wasn't the sort of reading of this image in the middle ages and just to say this is a very very unusual image i mean it's very rare that you get an image of any kind of you know, um, you know, um, you know, sort of the, the image of a, a medieval image of a man in what is perceived as, and I'm using scare quotes here, women's clothing. Um, that would be incredibly rare um, in medieval visual culture, and so I take this image partly because it's so unusual as a starting point for opening up these broader questions. Um, and, and both of these, like. The very salient that it's it's the story that's told, but actually seeing it is a whole nother situation, right? That absolutely, yeah. So there's something about you know, I mean, it is it is an incredibly striking image. I actually saw it for the first time. Um, it, there was an exhibition when basically the, the manuscript had, had been on uh, had been unbound, um, set, and all of the leaves been taken out so that it could be rebound but they had an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York where they showed the whole manuscript unbound so you could see everything um, and I went um, to this exhibition and that was my first encounter with this image and I just you know it was just an extraordinary moment because I'd never seen anything quite like it um, before um, and you know it immediately wanted to know more so so I think there is something about the fact that this 
um, seen, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's reasonably common in textual culture in the Middle Ages to have stories about saints being told where they're you know, dressing in different types of clothes, gendered clothing and so forth. I mean, particularly common to have stories about um, saints who are assigned as female at birth, but, are, you know, dress in male clothing to um, protect themselves from marriage, to um, protect their sexual purity. Um so it's quite common in textual culture and hagiography to get these kinds of stories, but it's much less common to see them translated into visual images. Um, so yes, there is something very distinctive about this being an image. And it, it is, it makes a wonderful, a, a wonderful example of like the, just the layers of miscommunication that can happen and how difficult it is to get to this. And which before we go any further, I mean, I feel like we need to bring up Foucault. I feel like I want to know when we'll be able to talk about the history of sexuality without talking about Foucault, but today's not that day. So perhaps you could explain what I'm, what I'm, what I mean here, what I'm talking about to our listeners. So, um, yes, I mean, I think Foucault is, uh, you know, certainly was a key figure for me as a historian of sexuality, um, because I think, um, you know, I mean, one of the um, points that Foucault is most famous for, although I think this is perhaps partly a kind of um, misreading, um, is that you know, in pre-modernity, in the Middle Ages, people thought in terms of acts, sexual acts, um, sinful sexual acts such as sodomy, whereas in modernity, we've shifted towards thinking about identity, that, um, you know, sexuality um, morphs into these identity categories which define one's whole person rather than just the acts that one is doing at a particular moment in time so that's he describes what might be a sort of seen as a kind of epistemological shift um, from you know in this movement from acts to identities as a way of thinking about you know how we desire have sex um, form intimate relations um, and the other thing that Foucault famously says in the first volume of his History of Sexuality um, is that sodomy is that utterly confused category, um, which is a wonderful phrase which a lot of scholars have seized upon. But, I mean, for me, that is actually a really important idea for the book because, you know, sodomy is... Um, as far as I can see, um, you know, a not very precise term. I mean, initially, it's a theological concept. It, it only intermittently refers to particular kinds of sexual activity. So it doesn't even describe acts very clearly. Um, you know, this is a term that ultimately comes from, you know, the Bible, um, which itself is notoriously vague about what, you know, um, the sins of the inhabitants of the city of Sodom are actually up to when they're condemned, um, when the city is destroyed by fire and brimstone. I mean, this is, this is the, the story recounted in Genesis chapter 19. 
So, um, you know, so it's not possible to work out exactly what sodom, sodomy is referring to in this context. And, you know, today, the definition of sodomy has narrowed substantially. So, you know, we tend to think about sodomy as referring mainly to anal sex, usually anal intercourse between men. Um, and that was certainly part of the medieval understanding. And some of the images and texts that I discuss at the end of the book do deal with that sort of anal rhetoric associated with sodomy. But in fact, most of the book, I'm not discussing that. What I'm discussing is the way in which sodomy becomes a very wide-ranging, all-embracing term, which precisely because of its ambiguities, precisely because it can be applied in so many different contexts, it becomes a useful scapegoating tool for denigrating people who don't fit in, who don't conform, who are outsiders in some way. Um, and so I think Foucault's idea that sodomy is an utterly confused category really did provide me with a framework for thinking about the, the multimedia ways in which sodomy is being deployed as a category, which go far beyond a particular variety of sexual act or a particular kind of sexual identity. Yeah. I mean, so is it fair to say that sodomy just becomes... Um... Like a catch-all for unnatural and or deviant behavior? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, that's one of the phrases that's used that sodomy is, um, you know, one of the alternatives um, to sodomy is to talk about sins against nature, for example. The idea that it represents some kind of affront to the natural. And again, I'm putting that word natural in scare quotes when I say that. Um, the other euphemism for sodomy in the Middle Ages, which is very common, is to talk about it as the unmentionable vice, this thing that can't be said, that can't be named. Um, and it's a sort of, you know, it, it's, it's quite paradoxical because the idea is that sodomy is something that can't be named, that can't be mentioned. And yet by saying it's the unmentionable vice, that's a way of saying it. Um, so, um, and one of the things that interested me about thinking about the visual culture associated with sodomy is the idea that the thing that can't be named can somehow still be seen, that it can be visualized. Um, and so I'm interested in the strategies that artists are using to render this so-called unmentionable vice visible. Sure. Right. This thing that we all know what it means. We, we know it when we see it, but we're not going to talk about it, which is just, you know, kind of hell for an historian, right? If you wanted to find something like more frustrating than that, I don't know. Um, all right. And so, I mean, the other thing is unnatural and unmentional, like deviant acts can, I mean, heresy falls under this, right, in practice. Yes, absolutely. Um, heresy and sodomy were sometimes used interchangeably in the later Middle Ages. I mean, in some regions, you know, the word for heretic is also used to, um, you know, denigrate sexual outsiders as well as religious outsiders. Um, so in German-speaking regions, for example, in the sort of 15th, 16th century, the word ketzery 
um, is a word that is applied equally to heretics as it is to sodomites. And indeed, the the, the English word buggery, um, which enters the statute books in 1533, when um, you know the vice of buggery is targeted by a, a new law that's brought in um, to um, bring um, sexual sins under the purview of the state under Henry VIII in England. Um, that term buggery, which is the basis for that law, comes from a French word, um, bougre, which in the 13th century referred to heresy. So these terms are interchangeable, and that's what I mean about how sodomy becomes a kind of scapegoating me- mechanism for targeting outsiders, whether religious, sexual, or indeed you know, the idea that sodomy is something that comes from outside in the sense of being foreign, that it's a kind of foreign import. That's another idea that we see coming up again and again. That sodomy is the thing that happens elsewhere and then infects um, society coming from the outside and, um, you know, then, you know, causing these this sort of, you know, trouble um, within um, Christian society. Sure. A moral contagion of any sort is exactly problematic. All right. So let's move into talking about the gender and the import here. All right. Can you just briefly, how's the gender binary understood in the Middle Ages? Briefly, she says. Yes. No, that is a, that is a big um, question. Um, well, um, I think, um, yes. I mean, gender binaries were, um, you know, it, it, it influential, important. Um, There was an investment in gender binaries. Um, I mean, you know, medieval thinkers, again, they don't have our vocabulary necessarily for thinking about, say, the distinction between gender, what we might see as a distinction between gender and sex. Um, The idea that there is this cultural thing called gender, and then there's this biological thing called sex. Um, You know, the, 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 the Latin word sexus in the Middle Ages, um, it is used in some ways akin to our modern sense of gender, in other ways akin to our modern sense of sex. Um, but yes, um, you know, medieval churchmen did have a strong sense of what is proper and appropriate for male behavior, and what is proper and appropriate for female behavior. Um, and so one of the things that I say in point out in the book is that um, sodomy is a profoundly gendered category, um, and um, you know that when um, you know churchmen are denigrating sodomy, what in fact they're most worried about is the idea that men might be slipping into the category of womanhood, or women slipping into the in, into masculine behaviour, and that that is seen as improper in some way. Um, so, um, so yes, um, it's, um, it's, you know, that gendered language is something that, um, I think I was very interested in seeing whether that gendered language in theological writings was actually being translated into images in some ways. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, gender is, is a, crucial category for the book and it's something that I return to again and again. 
So while sodomy is a kind of handy coin for conveying the overall subject matter of the book, um, I think, um, you know, gender and, and I, you know, various ideas that we might today think of under the category of transgender is also a really key um, framework for thinking about this material. You know, so talk to me about that. What is um, transgender? How so? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I guess my argument is that if we think with, you know, a category like transgender, which is a very modern category, um, it's a, a term that, you know, has a history of just a few decades. Um, and also talking about related categories that have become prominent in um historical and literary scholarship over the past few decades, categories like female masculinity, for example. Also, categories that have been important to the formation of gender and sexual identities in modernity, categories, for example, important in lesbian communities um, in the 20th century, such as butch and femme, that these categories can help bring into sharper focus the significance of gender transformation, transition in medieval characterizations of sodomitical behavior. So, so although transgender is a fundamentally unmedieval term, I mean, there's not a precise equivalent of transgender as a category in the Middle Ages. I think putting transgender into conversation with sodomy was a way of perhaps bringing out something that perhaps hadn't in previous scholarship had so much prominence. Right. So the sexual transgression is a gender transgression. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, I mean, you take someone like Hildegard of Bingen, um, who some listeners may have heard of, who's known amongst other things for her theological writings, also her um, musical compositions. Um, but she also writes about both... Um, um, sodomy, um, although it doesn't use the term, uses other vocabulary, but also writes about what she perceives as the problems when men start performing like women or women start performing like men in some ways. Um, and she is very clear that this is polluting this behavior, that this is something that is, you know, clearly against, in her eyes, God's laws. Um, and so, yes, so so sexual behavior, you know, um, a woman having sex with another woman, that that is, um, you know, going to um, problematically change the behavior of those women in very gendered ways and ways that, in her eyes, displease God. Um, so, so absolutely, it's thinking about how sexual behaviour has these gendered implications. But there are many other ways you can trans that you can transgress gender binaries that are going to upset upset Hildegard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on the context. I mean, one of the things she says is that you know it's okay for women to um, dress in male clothing if that's a sort of emergency situation where, for example, that woman needs to, um, you know, avoid, um, you know, being, um, you know, put in the way of danger 
in relation to her sexual purity, for example. So to protect your virginity, you know, if you need to, out of necessity, you know, dress as a man to sort of, you know, um, move in a male world or escape um, from um, a situation, a sticky situation. So there are contexts in which it's okay to switch gender roles temporarily. But, um, you know, there are other thinkers who, theologians, who talk about the category of the hermaphrodite, again, another category, which I'm putting in scare quotes. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the person who has, um, you know, um, signs of both um, sexes within that sexual binary. Um, and the the problem for medieval theologians is not that the um, you know non-binary sexed figure um, exists. It's that um, they might be in a situation where they're switching between gender roles, um, and consistency is key here. So they say it's okay if you decide what your gender role is going to be and you stick with that through your life. But if you are switching between gender roles, between the sexes that you've been assigned, then um, that's problematic and that is what spills into sodomitical behaviour. So nature, we want consistency, we want some very firm boundaries, um, which brings up one of the things you talk about as the medieval femme. I love that as a topic. Talk to me about the medieval femme. Yes, well, um, this is a really interesting category um, because, um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, femme is not a, a, a medieval term um, as such. Um, um, but um, what I was interested there is those moments in medieval textual and visual culture where the woman who is in a relationship with another woman but who does not turn male in some way that holds on to their femininity, their female identity, the extent to which those women become visible. And so there's a, 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 a story which is told by Ovid in his Metamorphoses about um, two women called Iphis and Ianthe, who, um, one of whom, Iphis, is brought up in childhood um, as a male, even though she's assigned female at birth. And then um, later in life, um, Ianthe, um, a beautiful um, young woman, meets Iphis, assumes that Iphis is male, the two fall in love, and then Iphis thinks, what am I going to do here? Because I'm not going to be able to perform in the bedroom. This is how Ovid tells the story. Um, and so Iphis um, prays to be transformed into a man, prays to the gods. Um, and he is transformed, um, becomes a man. And, you know, Ianthe and 
Spifus get married. But what I was interested in that story was not just in the figure of Spifus getting transformed into a man, which we might see as a figure for certain experiences we today would associate with transgender um, transgender um, transition um, embodiment, but also thinking about Ianthi as the female um, partner in that relationship um, who identifies consistently as female throughout the narrative. Because that's the figure that often is invisible in terms of um, discussions of these stories. And so I was interested in bringing out the femme to the fore um, as being an important player in these narratives and thinking about the extent to which that, you know, um, feminine identified female loving woman was represented. Of course, it's complicated by the fact that what Ianthe is um, in, you know, the, the person who Ianthe is in love with is, you know, performs as, is, identifies as, is a man. So that complicates that idea. Um, But I'm also interested in the interface and perhaps the blurred lines between transgender as a category and lesbianism as a category in this context as well. And this brings up the question of friendship, of, you know, what we've got here is female amity um, as well, right? Which is, um, there's a lot of overlap between the intimate and the erotic that doesn't map quite as we see it in the modern world, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. No, friendship was another really important um, category for me um, in this book, because um, friendship is one of those categories that, um, you know, uh, and also related ideas like the idea that, you know, that, I mean, there are, you know, scholars who have written about um, ceremonies um, between, um, you know, close companions that might be akin to modern notions of marriage. So, for example, John Boswell did some important work on thinking about um, this idea um, and you know, subsequently, uh, a scholar like Alan Bray, who wrote a book called The Friend, where he's thinking about particularly about the early modern discourses of friendship, but also how they overlap with these ritualized expressions of intimacy, such as wed brotherhood. Um, and in the Middle Ages, you know, there, there was a place for thinking about same-sex intimacy in the context of friendship, which legitimized it which saw it as the most sort of noble kind of relationship that one could have and yet there were moments in medieval culture where same-sex friendships slipped over into the category of sodomy Um, and so we catch a glimpse of the ways in which these categories of friendship and sodomy in some ways you know start to blur into one another, even as, you know, um, writers, thinkers, churchmen try to keep them apart and say friendship is legitimate and indeed can be the most noble kind of expression of intimacy that there is. But on the other hand, those same relationships can be tarnished with the brush of sodomy as a way of rendering them ethically unsound on some level. 
And there are some fairly good, fairly prominent examples of uh, where friendship is twisted into sodomy to, in in while discussing it, in order to dis, you know, discredit the the people we're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, a famous example would be King Edward II of England, for example, who is, you know, just, you know, his, his intimate relationships with male companions, in particular, for most famously, Piers Gaveston, um, are um, discussed in, in Chronicles, the idea that he has this very intense and passionate um, relationship and love for these other men. Um, but after his reign, um, you know, in a sort of backward projection, chroniclers start talking about him in terms of the sodomitical and indeed the way that he famously and reputedly meets his death um, by being penetrated through his anus to his mouth by a, um, you know, a, a, a poker or a spit um, is designed to reference his you know, sodomitical, um, and the, the sort of sodomitical underpinnings to his um, relationships, I guess. So he's treated a bit like the sodomites in hell, um, who I discussed in my doctoral um, research um, and in my first book, Suspended Animation, where um, they're punished by being spit roasted by being turned by devils on spits um, as a way of referencing and making visible their sinful sexual behavior. So I think that's a very well-known example of this slippage between sodomy and friendship in medieval culture. And you see fewer of those with women. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, I mean, that I think it's it's not, um, it's not at the same time the case that in the Middle Ages there weren't spaces for representing female intimacy um, and that those relations between women didn't themselves slip over into the category of sodomy, but it is less common, I guess. Um, there is a sort of sense that, you know, um, females, say, in, in some scholarship, that female same-sex intimacy only really comes into visibility in around the sort of 18th, 19th century with figures like Anne Lister, for example, famously describes in her um, letters and diaries, you know, um, intimate, often sexual relations with other women. Um, but the material that I uncover in my book suggests that actually sometimes this same slippage between friendship and sodomy also applies to to women and one context in which I discuss this which paradoxically might not seem to be the most obvious place to look for sodomy is the female anchor hold um, the anchorite is a person who um, you know chooses willingly to shut themselves off from the world and from broader society by holding themselves up in a cell usually attached to the side of a church. Um, a famous example would be Julian of Norwich. Um, um, and they choose to dedicate themselves to a life of chastity and devotion to God for the rest of their lives in this solitary confinement, essentially. Um, now, I looked in my book at um, in my research for the for the book, at some of the writings um, that were produced for women who 
chose this life as an anchorite. And I found that some of the language in these texts suggested a certain anxiety about um, the relations that anchorites locked in their solitary cells might form with other people, um, their maidservants, for example. Because while they're technically in solitary confinement, they sometimes clearly had people who were helping them out, looking out for them. And I noticed that some of the language in these texts was very subtly suggesting that there is, for example, this nameless thing, which you know is unmentionable, but which can happen in situations where people are intimately living with one another might happen. It doesn't say exactly what it is. It doesn't use the word sodomy specifically, but I think it's very clearly a sort of euphemistic allusion to the potential that even in the context of an anchor hold, which is meant to be closed off from the world and contained and pure, there might be the danger that something sodomitical could happen. This is a, a hard nut to crack. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. And I think um, I mean I've taken up a good bit of your time, and I think we're we've gotten kind of to a place I wanted us to understand. You your book really picks apart these seemingly just impenetrable situations. You know, what is what does the word sodomy even mean? How does that track onto friendship? What does that do with gender? Does gender change? These are really big questions that seem um, difficult, particularly, you know, if I were to, if you asked me about my neighbors, I would have trouble discussing, you know, answering these questions. And now you're, we're talking about people who've been gone, you know, and left, and loads of people who left no traces, obviously. Um, so there's just a few places to get at this, but you do really, it's a really wonderful book, listeners. <laughs> you, do, you do a great job with it. Um, so my, my next question is this one, I hope is easy. Uh, what's, what are you doing now? Yes, no, good question. Um, well, um, <laughs> in terms of my research, um, I have been thinking for quite a long time about questions of animality and wildness. Um, and some of that comes out of my previous work on the history of sexuality. Um, so, I mean, I recently was giving a paper on the figure of Ganymede, who is a figure that I discuss in seeing Sodom in the Middle Ages, who is, um, according to ancient legend, ancient myth, he's abducted um, as a, a, an adolescent um, and taken up into the skies by Jupiter, um, the god who is disguised as an eagle, uh, to become Jupiter's cupbearer. Um, and um, this is a story that in the Middle Ages was often um, interpreted as being um, about homoeroticism, about sodomy on some level. But in my recent paper that I gave on this material, I was thinking about Ganymede's dogs, thinking about the, 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 the part that animals are playing in these stories about which become so important for the history of sexuality. Because when Ganymede is abducted, he's out hunting with his dogs. And there are some images, um, you know, including some medieval images, which actually represent 
one or more of the dogs. So I was interested in the extent to which these dogs become a kind of figure of kind of protest against sexual abuse, which seems to be one of the things that the Jupiter Ganymede legend is about. So that's just one example of the ways in which, you know, questions around the animal um, um, have come out of my research on on sodomy. I mean, another context would be the rhetoric of animalization, um, the idea that people are dehumanized in some ways in relation to imagery. So I mentioned the images of sodomites being spit-roasted in hell. Um, well, they're also being likened to cooked meat in that way. Um, indeed, one um, um, you know record, um, you know, indeed a a few records suggest that this spit roasting of sodomites makes them akin to pigs being roasted on a spit. Um, and so that sort of rhetoric of animalization, I think, has also, and dehumanization has been quite important in the history of sexuality. But, you know, I'm also thinking about animality and ideas of wildness in other ways as well, thinking about um, the extent to which the human as a category is being defined in relation to what it is not. And so I've been doing quite a lot of work recently on thinking about these hairy beings known as wild men or wood woeses, um, as they're known in England. Um, and, you know, just thinking about what's going on. Why, why uh, is there this obsession in certain parts of England, for example, with representing these wild hairy beings on the sides of churches, um, um, protecting church fonts and so forth? So that's taken me also into um, questions of, you know, the way in which dehumanization has been used rhetorically as a tool to think with in medieval culture and thinking about ideas of racialization, for example, in the racialized body as well as the sexualized body in this context. Wow, I'm fascinated. I have so many questions. Uh, that, that sounds fantastic. Um, and I got, all right, I can't wait. I'll read that one. Um, and so when I, let me just say one more good thing about this book while we're still on air. It's really readable. Um, you're a great writer. It's a, and academic books don't always work that way. So listeners, I, I realize I've said it enough, but please go get your hands on this book and give it a listen. And uh, I will be back to talk to you about your next one. Okay. Okay, great. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful speaking about it.